and uh, we'll be looking. Um, this is actually a two-part sermon. I didn't know that until the first service this morning, but this is a two-part sermon. Uh, two things that I'd like to say uh, ahead of time. First of all, if this is the first time you're here and you've never in your life heard an announcement from the pulpit about a garden tractor pole dealing with the church, uh, you're in for good news or news anyway. Uh, one of the things that uh, I have the privilege of doing is having a very unique ministry. Uh, and we're asking you, to, I'm asking, telling you this so you can pray. I have the opportunity to give a gospel message to the guys that will actually be pulling, actually putting on the event. Uh, there's about 50 some of them that are a part of that. Uh, at the driver's meeting, I get to give um, a gospel message, plus a number of the people from Garden Chapel will be handing out approximately 2,000 tracts to the people that actually attend that are in the audience. And this is the first night of the Pennsylvania Farm Show, Saturday night, um, from 6 to 9. So uh, anyway, letting you know, pray for us. It's a very unique opportunity. I don't know of any other pastors that get to do this, but I do. And um, uh, it's just my privilege to be able to do that. A number of people from the Garden, Garden Chapel here are helping put on the pull, as well as handing out the tracks. And I'm just elaborating on what Pastor John said. If in any way, shape, or form you are a part of helping with that event, see me right down front here immediately afterwards. I have to give you some instructions and parking passes. You will not be able to get in without them or you'll have to pay. Uh, so see me so that we can get that. If you're going, hey, you didn't talk to me about this or I didn't volunteer or anything like that and you want to be a part of it, come down see if, the, if there's a place for you. I have never had too many helpers. So uh, just kind of keeping that in mind. So um, just that's that. You found in your bulletin a read through the Bible in three years brochure. I am not telling you that this is some kind of magic and you must use this. My challenge the last Sunday of every year is to challenge you to be in the Bible on a regular, hopefully daily basis in the coming year. That's what I'm going to do today. I realize my sermon is too long, so I'll actually be challenging you again next week uh, uh, in the same direction. This simply will take you through the New Testament in one year. You can fold it up, use it as a bookmark, check it off as you go through it, and uh, do that. If you have another method of being in the Bible on a regular basis, this isn't for you. Continue to use that. If you've never read through the Bible, I challenge you to take this and read through the Bible. You may even want to use it in conjunction with what you're already doing. I can use my wife as an example. She does not start any morning of her life, at least not that I know of, without sitting at the table with her oatmeal, her tea, and whatever else she has, her daily bread and her Bible. That's what she does every morning, uh, like clockwork. That's you? Feel free. Great. Praise the Lord. If you have some other way, uh, you have some app on your computer or your cell phone you use, feel free. By the way, you're allowed to put apps on there and look at your Bible, but you're not supposed to be playing games in church on your whatever. I don't even know the names of those things. Uh, but anyway, I just want to encourage you to be in the Bible on a regular basis in the year ahead. The Bible says that uh, it's like our daily bread. I have, I cannot think of a day in my life where I have not eaten physical food. The sickest day of my life I have still eaten. I'm telling you, the Word of God is that important. And today my sermon 
uh, deal, and I usually deal with some aspect of the Bible. Today I'm going to be looking at the aspect of how do I know that the 66 books in this book are the right ones? Are they, do they really belong there? The 39 books of the Old Testament, are they the right ones? The 27 of the New Testament, did they get it right? Is our Bible correct? Can we trust it? Now, this is not a technical sermon. You could spend a long, long time looking at history and all of these things. Mine is to be practical. And I realized uh, halfway through the first service this morning, I have two sermons instead of one. So next week, I will take the second half of this. We'll just look at the first half. But can I really trust the Bible? Can I trust what I read? Do I know for sure I have God's Word? The answer is a resounding yes. Are there other books? And by the way, you notice I entitled it Not Banned from the Bible because I know uh, that it's been popular. Books have been written. The History Channel has this on. Banned from the Bible. And they have all these books that supposedly were banned from the Bible because of whatever reasons, and I'm not going to go into that. Most of them have really good reasons for not being there. But um, we're going to look at that whole concept, and we're going to concentrate on the ones that are there because they belong there. One of the things, and you may not use this word, it's the word canon, not with two ends in the middle. That's the one you shoot in a battle. This is canon dealing with a standard of measurement. The fact is, the canon of Scripture is a list of books, 66 of them, considered to be officially accepted and authoritative. These are the Word of God. The Word itself is used two times, used more than two times in the New Testament, but in the book of Revelation is used as a measure, a a, a standard of measurement uh, when they're measuring the New Jerusalem. It really literally means a reed, but a reed that was a specific length and it was used to measure. You could say uh, a yardstick or a meter. It is that, that type of thing. And the, the books that we have in our Bible are those that met the standard. So they're a part of the canon of Scripture or the canon of the Bible. It's that identifying standard that they meet. There are five of them, major ones. Uh, We'll look at one or two of them this morning, and the others we'll look at next week. One of the things that we do know and need to know is that what I'm challenging you to do in the coming year is something worthwhile. It's not reading... uh, the weekly paper or the daily paper or a magazine or something else. This is something different. It is truly the Word of God. One of the things that has uh, been said uh, for many years is, well, Christians decided, in early early church, uh, the Christians decided which books go in the Bible. That's partly true, but it's not the whole truth. My emphasis is going to be on the second half of that. I'll give you a little bit of history, but not very much at all. But the truth of the matter is, every book that is inspired that belongs in the canon was inspired from the day it was written. 
because God is the one, according to the scripture, that directed the people to write them. And you go, did the people who wrote these things, did they know they were writing scripture? The answer is yes, they did. Now, we don't know of every one of them, but the ones that we have information about make it clear. Peter knew he was writing the word of God. The apostle Paul knew he was writing the word of God. Moses knew that he was communicating the word of God. Uh, I'll just use those for examples. Uh, so, but the canon as we know it developed over time. Simply this. It took about 1,500 years for all of the books to be written. And so they weren't all there all at one time. Some of the books, for example, that the Apostle Paul wrote. He wrote them to, say, the church at Corinth. Well, there was only one original letter, and it was at the church of Corinth. Till it got passed around and other people recognized it, they didn't even, other churches may not even known it existed for quite some time. And so it did take a while for that to happen. The Old Testament is rather easy, because by the time of Jesus, the Old Testament canon as we know it, and there are, for example, the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, they add a couple of books uh, that are in question. I don't believe they belong there. But there were some minor issues, and believe me, they are minor, because the, the 39 that we have in our Bible, all Christians all over the world of whatever stripe agree. The 27 books of the New Testament all Christians of all stripes agree they belong there. There's a few, and that is not my purpose. I told you this is not a technical sermon. But the ones we have are agreed upon. How do we know they're the right ones? Um, and we're going to look at that as we go through. One thing I started thinking is like, okay, do how do I know? You know, I, I'm going to give you a list of things that you can measure by and what have been the measurements. But I started thinking, what would be an example? I have seen in fruit arrangements on people's tables and sideboards, I've seen a bowl of fruit. And I have seen some apples that are not apples at all, but they really look like a very nice, perfect, red, delicious apple. Now, if you went over and took a bite out of one of them, you would find out very quickly, it looks like an apple, but it's not an apple because wax does not taste like a sweet tart apple, you know? Because if I picked it up and I smelled it, it would smell like wax or paint or whatever it was. If I took a bite into it, it would be wax, not apple. One of the things that's true is the books that we have in our, our Bible, they are actually living. We're going to see that in a moment. The, the Apostle Peter actually tells us that. They're living. They're dynamic. We could read lots of books and you go, yeah, this isn't from God. This is man's wisdom. This is man's thinking. But when we look at the Bible, even inside, and this is the most subjective of everything I'm going to say to you today, is when you read the Bible, you go, this is different. It's not easy reading. In fact, is the apostle Peter made it clear some of the stuff that Paul wrote is hard to understand. And he was not joking. He was not joking at all. Because it is. It's not easy reading. Why? It's supernatural, God-centered truth given to sinful people like ourselves. People who have a finite understanding. 
And God is conveying eternal types of truth, supernatural truth to us. So some of the things are going to be hard to understand. Without the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit, uh, we wouldn't be able to understand. That's not my sermon this morning. But the truth of the matter is, I challenge you. Take a bite of the apple. That's it. Because I'm going to guess that there are people in here that, other than when the pastor on Sunday morning says, turn to this passage, your Bible gets pretty dusty in about the other six days. And I'm challenging you, bite into the apple. See what the Word of God says and and begin to understand the dynamic of it. You are actually in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. And I'd just like to read that passage. Very interesting passage. And uh, it's, it's more than just about the Word of God, but let's start at verse 22 and go through verse 25. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the, from the heart. Notice, obedience to the truth. So we start out, he's saying, I have something that I can verify. It is true. We'll look at that again in a moment. And then it goes on in verse 23. For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, and now he's going to tell you what that seed is. Through the living and enduring word of God. So he clarifies what that seed is. He says there's a couple kinds of seeds. There's seeds that rot and go away. And there's other seed, the word of God. It's living and enduring. It doesn't perish. So he's saying there's something here that's more than the normal. It's more than the earthly. It is supernatural. He says it is the word of God. Notice that's where that word living comes from, that dynamic part. And it's the enduring word of God. How enduring is it? You need to go to the next two verses. And these are quotes from the Old Testament, by the way. All flesh is like grass. And all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now notice what he says at the very end of that verse. And this is the word which was preached to you. What Peter is saying is what I've told you and what the other apostles have told you, this is God's word. So did Peter know it? Did Paul know it? The answer is, yeah, they did. They knew that what they had came from God. There are a couple of words that I want to look at just to put them in our thinking for this sermon and for the the future sermon. By the way, some people use these words interchangeably. They're not really interchangeable, but because they mean two different things. Um, And pretty technical, I guess. But anyway, we say that we believe the Bible is inerrant. Well, that should tell you. Free from error. That's correct. But what we're saying is the original manuscripts. We don't have them. We have faithful copies of them, but we don't have the originals. I want to be very clear about that. Uh, But they are accurate and totally free from error. We believe that when God spoke, he didn't stutter. He said exactly what he means, and he means what he said. He said it right. Infallible is a different concept. Simply means that it is completely useful and trustworthy in our lives. So one says... It is true. God said it exactly the way he wanted it. 
and the effect of it in our lives is that it is useful and trustworthy to guide our lives in matters of faith and salvation and spiritual growth and knowing the future and those types of things. It is wholly trustworthy, completely useful for our lives. And if it's not that, then my emphasis and your emphasis on reading the Bible is totally misplaced. You ought to be looking for a final authority. I believe the Bible is absolutely the final authority given to us by God. Today, our whole thing is looking at how do we get it? How do we know these are the actual books? By the way, one other thing that always comes up in these things is, well, it's been recopied and recopied over the years, and who knows what's true? An interesting thing happened right before I was born, back in the 1940s and then in the 50s. I was born in the 50s. In the, near the Dead Sea, they found some manuscripts. Now, if you don't know this, your Old Testament was translated from some manuscripts from about A.D. 900. Okay, 900 years after the birth of Christ was the earliest uh, Hebrew manuscripts of the Old Testament that we had. And people said, oh, you can't trust that. Well, when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found manuscripts that were untouched for a thousand years before that. They were written somewhere around 100 B.C. and before that. They hadn't been touched. They were sealed up in clay jars in a cave. When they pulled them out, guess what? Except for minor things like spelling and and some of those types of things, they were almost identical to the manuscripts that were being used 900,000 years later. And so, you understand that the preser- that's a preservation, that's another sermon also. But how was the Word of God preserved? It was God-produced. Most of us know 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is inspired by God. The word inspired by God is one word in Greek. It simply means God-breathed. Or God spoken, God produced. That's what it means. So, putting a book in the canon of Scripture did not inspire it. It was inspired from its beginning. Man simply recognized which ones were that. And you say, why do they have to do that? Because like every other area of life, when there is the real, there are always the knockoffs. Did you ever notice that somebody comes out with a brand name product? It doesn't matter what it is. And immediately, many, many companies start making knockoff products, usually of inferior quality or endurance or whatever else. Uh, They just don't meet the standard. And that's why... You know, we say, well, I I only buy this because I know I can trust it. The others, they fail. If you want to know how I know this, I buy stuff at Harbor Freight. Believe me, it may look like Craftsman and and, uh, Snap-on, but it doesn't work the same. Uh, I've broken my knuckles and a lot of other things because of that. But you know what? The Word of God was mimicked. Those that were not authoritative, not inspired, were written. Hundreds and thousands of other books have been written. Old Testament as well as New Testament times. 
but they don't stand the test. Now, there is no test in the Bible other than the ones we're going to look at where it says, no, there were scriptures inspired, produced by God. In fact, is the whole, it makes it clear, and we'll see that passage, the Holy Spirit is the one that directed them. Even at the same time, using their own personalities and backgrounds and styles, and still came out with exactly what God wanted to written. So which books do belong? Who decided which books belong there? And is it possible to trust our Bible? Those are the three things we're going to look at. First of all, who decided what books should be in the Bible? As I already mentioned, God is the one that decided which ones were inspired. The church, as a whole, came together and said, we recognize these. How did they come up with that? What was the standard they went by? That is the main part of the sermon, which I'll get to later. And which books do actually belong in our Bible? And that is the whole thing that we're going to look at uh, as we look uh, at the Word of God. Just a few things. The points that I'm going to make, not a single one of them is definitive. For example, the first one we're going to look at, and I'll, I'll switch ahead here for a second. Was it written by a recognized prophet or apostle? Immediately comes to mind. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? Nobody really knows. Okay? So, obviously, Hebrews isn't included because it was written by one of the apostles. I have a clue as to who wrote it, but I can't prove that. So, it wouldn't be uh, confirmed by just one thing. There's a whole lot of other things that go into it. So, but uh, the criteria are a list of them. Again, uh, some of the Old Testament. Very, fairly easy to understand which books of the Old Testament belong in the canon. Because Jesus and the Apostle Paul and Peter, for example, they quoted most, not quite all, but almost all of the books of the Old Testament. I think about 34 of the 39 of them were quoted by Jesus and the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. For example, Jesus quoted, and I I used this in a sermon a couple of weeks ago, Jesus quoted from Genesis chapter 1, and from Genesis chapter 2. You don't get much earlier than that, except from possibly the book of Job. And so you look at these things and you realize Jesus put his stamp of approval on that. One of the tests is, did Jesus, one of the apostles or a prophet, give his stamp of approval? The church could no more make a document, a book, authoritative, than Sir Isaac Newton could make gravity. You know what? He made some statements about gravity, but gravity was given to us by the Creator. I don't think anybody actually understands gravity to the fullest. Isaac Newton didn't invent it. God did. The church didn't invent the Bible. God did. But Sir Newton recognized and codified what gravity does, like the church did the Word of God. Um, there are a lot of other things that we could look at, but uh, the, the two things that you need to understand is part of the canon and collecting are two different things. A book of the Bible was always authoritative, whether it was recognized by someone or not. Uh, and for many years, as I said, the whole Bible wasn't put together. By about 200 A.D., it was 
pretty much in the form we know it now, by about 400 AD, and these are round figures, uh, it was pretty much exactly the way we see it now. And it was uh, a few other uh, questions were still being asked at that point yet. So, is it possible to trust the Bible? I propose to you that yes, it is. It's been trusted long before we were here, long before the church was here. In fact is, the Old Testament was trusted long before Jesus was here. It was trusted from the time Moses wrote uh, the first books of the Bible. And as I mentioned a few weeks ago, some of the things that Moses wrote came directly from God. The first thing we're going to look at, and I'll leave it for there, was it written by a recognized prophet or an apostle? We need to do a few definitions here to uh, get us in order. What is a prophet? The normal thing that people think of prophet, somebody that tells the future. Prophets do indeed tell the future. But that's not a full definition of the word prophet as used in the Bible. A prophet is one who speaks directly to man from God. For example, I am not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, and neither are you. Even if you preach or teach, you're not a prophet. There are people going around saying, I'm a prophet. I, I, I discount that. Because I am a preacher or a teacher. I take what God has already said, and hopefully my claim to fame is when you leave here, you go, oh, Pastor Paul explained that. I understand that verse of Scripture or that passage or that concept. If I can do that, I believe I've done my job. But I'm not speaking something new. For example, Moses was a prophet. The Ten Commandments had never been given before. In fact, is that one's a very unique one in that God first wrote it down himself. Then, of course, you know Moses, he got angry, smashed them, and God said, okay, Moses, you want to smash my law? Uh, you get to chisel it out next time. And so he had to chisel the second set himself. But it was, came directly from God. It didn't come from some other source. God gave it directly to Moses. The first books of the, New Te- of the Old Testament in Genesis. Nobody was there to see in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And nobody was there when he said, let there be light or let the earth bring forth uh, vegetation with their seed in them. Nobody was there. Man wasn't even created at that point. So it had to come directly from God to Moses, and then Moses gave it to the people. Um, The whole thing is, Moses actually was told by the people, because God was speaking, uh, in Exodus, God was speaking directly to the people, and they really got freaked out. You understand what the law was given for. The law did not bring salvation. It was an external restraint. In fact, is the New Testament is very clear, that, and, and so is the Old Testament, that the law brought death. You've probably heard me say this before. How many of the Ten Commandments have a death penalty attached to them? Nine of them. The first nine have a death penalty. Check it out. I did it. It took me a long time to find them all, but I found them. All the first nine commandments have a death penalty. The tenth one does not, because it's covet. You go, okay, now why doesn't covetousness have a death penalty? Because if you covet, you're going to break one or the other, so it doesn't really matter. That's the way I look at it. 
But you know what? Nine of the ten. So the law brings death. The law was given to show us how exceedingly sinful sin really is. It showed us the standard that God gave. And it gave external restraints on those that would sin against their neighbor or sin against God. There were consequences, judgments that went with that. And so uh, when God was giving the law directly to the people, they're going, no, 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 stop. I I think it just really freaked them out. And they said um, to Moses in Exodus chapter 20, verse 19, then they, that is the people, said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. They understood how powerful the words of God were. They also understood that when Moses said it to them, it was the same as God, except that Moses was in between them. You see, he was a prophet. He spoke on behalf of God, and that's exactly what he did. They never doubted Moses' word. I didn't say they believed it. I'm I'm sorry, I didn't say they, they practiced it, but they knew he was speaking on God's behalf. They knew that. In fact, if you go to Exodus chapter 34, and I'm just going to point out a few verses there. It says in verse 27 of Exodus 34, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write down these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Now notice, he says to Moses, The things you're writing down are my covenant with you. They're my word to my people. Verse 28, So, He was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He did not eat bread nor drink water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now remember, God had already written them once before. He had done it supernaturally. This case, Moses had to spend what it looks here in at least a big portion of 40 days with a hammer and chisel on the tablets and writing it down. But it was God's word to the people. And uh, he, of course, as you know, came back and brought it to the people and gave it to them. But let's look. And if you're still in First Peter, go to Second Peter. And I'd encourage you to go to this passage. Um, we're going to look at two more passages. One more is going to be in Second Peter also. Um, and uh, this one here is Second Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 14. I mentioned this one already, but I'd like you to see it for yourself. Verse 14 of 2 Peter 3. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. Now, notice what Peter is saying. He's saying... What Paul wrote to them were words of wisdom. He wrote to them, gave them wisdom. Now, at this point, it doesn't say it was inspired by God. It doesn't say that at this moment yet. It doesn't say it should be part of the canon. It doesn't say that yet. But he is an apostle saying, My brother apostle wrote to you, and what he wrote to you were wise words. But now we're in verse 16, and this is where it all comes together. As also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, in which the untaught and unstable distort, 
as they do, now catch the last part, the rest of the Scriptures. Notice what Peter just did. He took the writings of the Apostle Paul to the churches and he equates them on an equal basis with the Scriptures. Now, you're going to have to take my word for this because I don't have time to go into this and all the time. But the Scriptures referred to are the Old Testament. Jesus had already confirmed that the Old Testament was true. He confirmed that it was God's word. He quoted it as God's authority. The Apostle Paul had done the same thing, so did Peter. But he's saying here, the Apostle Paul's letters are the equivalent of the already established Old Testament. And he is taking the New Testament writers, Paul in particular, who wrote most of the books of the New Testament anyway, and saying they are the same and they are of equal authority with the Old Testament scriptures. Paul had made it clear that it was the sacred writings or the scriptures that lead us to salvation. Jesus Christ had told the disciples, I have many more things to tell you, but you can't get them all right now. But the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth, giving us a pattern for what God was going to do in the future when Jesus Christ was off the face of the earth. That there would be those that would write future things that God wanted us to know. Doesn't tell us who was going to do it or how they were going to do it. Doesn't tell us any of those things. Just simply says, hey, I'm going to tell you more things. More than just what I have done. You're going to hear some more things in the future. So again, but it does make it clear here that it is possible to take the things of the Lord and distort them, to twist them, um, and, and make them something different. But he says... People who are untaught and unstable distort these things. So, was it written by an apostle? Was it written by a prophet? That is one of the first things. It's not true of every book. It's not the only standard, but it is part of the standard. It was it written by an apostle. The apostle Paul, you know, kind of an obvious one. But we're going to look at... Was it authentic? And you go, hold it a second. You just said you believe the Bible's true. Is it authentic? What do I mean by that? It's a little more than just that simple. Was it a personal eyewitness account of the life of Christ? Was it Moses on the mountain? Was it directly spoken from God to that person like he spoke to Moses as a friend to a friend? Was it the result of careful research? God gave us a brain, folks, and even in the writing of Scripture, He required the writers of Scripture to use their brain, to be a detective, to find out exactly what was going on. Luke was a companion of the Apostle Paul. If you don't believe that, read the book of Acts. He wrote two books. He wrote the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts. He was a companion. Mark was also a companion of the Apostle Peter. He also wrote the Gospel of Mark. The point is this, is where did they get the information? Did God just kind of open their head up and pour the information in? In some cases, he may have. In other cases, for example, Luke, and we're going to look at Luke chapter 1. If you want to turn there, you can. I'm going to read it, um, and then I'm going to finish with uh, 1 Peter chapter uh, I'm sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1. But Luke chapter 1, verse 1. 
tells us exactly how Luke went about writing the Gospel of Luke. It says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us. So he said, I'm not the only one that's done this type of thing. But he said, here's what I did. Verse 2, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the, from the beginning. I'm sorry, let me start over again. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. In other words, Luke says, I wasn't one of the original 12, but I have listened to them. They were the eyewitnesses. They saw it. Peter uh, is going to say that we didn't give you cleverly devised tales, but we were eyewitnesses. And Peter has an inside story that most other people will never have, but we'll get there in a moment. But he says, Luke said, I listened. I got the story from first-hand sources. Those that worked with Christ were servants of Christ. Those that heard exactly what went on and saw what went on. Verse 3, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, a friend of his who needed to know the truth. Luke says, I'm writing it as a personal letter to a friend of mine who needs to know the truth about Jesus Christ. And verse 4 says, that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So obviously this guy knew something about Christ, but he didn't have it all. Luke said, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write. We know that the scripture is God breathed. We know, and we're going to read that passage next if you want to turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, we're going to look at that passage because this one gives us the details of how God actually produced the scripture and how he used man to write it in his own culture, his own personality, his own education, his own background, and all of those kinds of things. If you think the apostle Paul writes as a lawyer, you would be right. If you think Peter uh, writes a little bit like more an uneducated kind of fisherman kind of guy, you would be right. Because every God used them, their own personality, their own background, their own culture, but he at the same time conveyed exactly what he wanted them to know, or us to know. But in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, and I'm going to close with this, simply says this. Peter is writing. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now notice, Peter was an eyewitness of what went on in the three, three and a half years of Christ's ministry. He was an eyewitness of that. But that's not what he's referring to. He had all of that as his background. But he says we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That throws us into another dimension. What dimension was that? We'll keep reading. For when we, he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an ordinance as this was made by him to the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. You know that as the transfiguration. Only three people were there. 
that were living on the earth at that point. They saw something no one else saw. Christ was transfigured in front of them. And at that same time, God, the Father from heaven, said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Peter said, I was an eyewitness and an ear witness to things that most people never have. That's Peter. He says, I was there. All the other accounts say he was there. And so he says, I write to you things that most other people couldn't write to you. Because, and it's not a tale, it's not secondhand information in this case, it's not an investigation that I did. Peter said, I was there. I saw it, I heard it. Everything that needed to be for a first-hand account. He says, that's what I've done. And then he says, and here is the, probably the classic verse in all of, of the passage in all Scripture. Verse 19, so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in our hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Next week, I'll pick up there because you go, oh, well, this is about interpretation. The word literally has to do with the production of Scripture. How do I know that? The next verse clarifies that. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. It doesn't matter if they were eyewitnesses of the, the, the majesty of Christ. It doesn't matter if they did the research. It doesn't matter if they heard from the clouds or it was written on a, a piece of stone or however it was given. God says Scripture was produced by God using people. By the way, isn't that interesting? It's encouraging. God could do everything he wants done in this world by himself. But guess what? He wants to use me. And I'll tell you what. I think sometimes he's really desperate. I'm joking about that. No, he might be desperate. You know what? But you know what? He wants to choose you. He, that's right. Yeah, he, he wants to use you also. See, God could speak the gospel in a giant loudspeaker system. He doesn't even need a loudspeaker system plugged in. He could do that. He could send angels. He could do all kinds of things. But he chooses to use you and I. When he inspired Scripture, produced Scripture, he chose to use people. That's what he does. God is a God who chooses to make us a part of what he is doing. Whether it's spreading the gospel around our neighborhood like Pastor John and, and the Seed Sowers crew does a great job at. Or our missionaries around the world, then they do a great job. Or it's from the pulpit here or in a Sunday school class or a youth group or your own personal Bible study. It doesn't matter. God uses people to do his work. And, un, and, and just like he uses people to do his work today, he used people to produce Scripture. And it was Scripture from the very beginning. No one made it Scripture. God produced it. He breathed it. Literally, God breathed. In the same way you're hearing my voice. I know there's a microphone on me, but if it wasn't on, you'd still hear me. I got a big mouth. Just like you would hear me speaking, God says... That's what I'm doing. That's my word. It is inspired. It is God's word from the very beginning. Praise the Lord. Men took great, great pains 
of evaluating all of the produced documents and said, these are the only ones that stand the test. Now, we have a bunch of other tests. We already looked at two of them. But uh, the, other, the other ones we'll look at next week. And when you apply them, you go, yeah, that makes sense. We can trust the Word of God. I believe you can trust it, but if you're going to trust it, you need to know what it is. That's why I'm encouraging you in the weeks ahead, the months ahead, to be in the Word of God on a regular basis. If you're wondering why the Christian life is kind of dull and boring and you're not sure what direction to go and you're always kind of in a fog, get in the Word of God. It is, as we said, like a lamp shining in a dark place. No one that I know of would disagree that this world is a dark, dreary place. A lot of false things going around. But the Word of God is like a lamp shining in that dark place. That's what we all need. And it's not just enough for a Sunday morning for an hour or half an hour that I usually get. It's more than that. I challenge you for the, the year ahead... Be in the Word of God on a regular basis. Let's all stand together as we close. Father, we thank you for the privilege of having your Word. Lord, what a privilege it is to have people who have gone on before who were able to uh, compile these things and put them together so that uh, we could simply use them and apply them in our own personal lives and our ministries. Lord, I thank you for the Word of God. And I pray that we would see it for exactly what it is, the very words of God. And Lord, that we would know it, study it, and put it into practice in our lives. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with God. God bless.